Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He just published a book in October. The full title of the book is Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as the Son of Sam. His name is Michael A. Caparelli, PhD. His last name is spelled C-A-P-A-R-R-E-L-L-I, so it's double R, double L. And I started reading this book yesterday. And I read the whole thing all in one day. It's really fascinating. And I've always been, I've had other guests on about Son of Sam. And there's been a lot of disputations and talks about uh, Berkowitz. But I found this book to be really one of the best books I've read about. The psychology of somebody who commits these crimes is very insightful. And a lot of terms and a lot of things he knew, uh, Dr. Caparelli knows that. I, I didn't really know some of these terms, so I'm glad to have him on. It's not his first book. He's also written... Pen Your Pain into Parables, a Tool for Recovery. That was from 2019. But right now, this book just came out within the last month. It already has 45-star reviews on Amazon in the U.S., and uh, it's well-deserved. So, Dr. Michael A. Caparelli, welcome to the show. Thank you, William. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So, for people who may not have heard your name, I saw you on CBN. You did an interview on the Christian Broadcasting Network, and this book is just... Can you maybe talk a little bit about your background and what led up to, to you putting together this book, Monster Mirror? Well, I began my career as a pastor of a church uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, kind of an inner city congregation, worked with inmates extensively, inmates uh, in the prison and those that were released, also worked with the mentally ill, uh, people in addiction. So I was a clergyman for 16 years. Uh, but in that process, I pursued uh, higher education, 12 and a half years of college full time. Uh, my last degree was the longest seven years, PhD in behavioral science, which uh, consists of abnormal psychology, criminal psychology, general psychology. And then somewhere around my 15th year of pastoring just got burnt out. Listen, you know, you're burnt out when you're sitting down and you're fantasizing about how relaxing jail would be. You know, you're burnt out. <laughs> so for me, that was the sign that, look, I think pastoring is uh, coming to its end. And I'd finished the PhD. I'd suffered two heart attacks. Um, my first heart attack was a minor heart attack in my early 40s. And then my second one in my mid-40s, I had the, the widow maker. And uh, it almost killed me. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm done pastoring. Uh, I'm going to travel, which I've been traveling for the last four years, uh, speaking on the subject of mental health in prisons, universities, uh, churches. I was in 18 nations in the last year. I uh, wrote a few books on mental health from a faith-based perspective. And uh, somewhere along the way, probably 2020, 21, I decided to mail one of my books, Dr. Jesus was the name of the book, Mental Health from a Biblical Perspective, to David Berkowitz. And I'd seen his interview on a few uh, programs. I saw that he had become a Christian. Now, I'm always skeptical of these things like anybody else. I wanted to see this for myself. Is this truly a conversion or is it a, you know, a jailhouse uh, testimony rather than a testimony? And I, I mailed him the book, uh, Dr. Jesus, and within two weeks, he got back to me. He basically said, look, I'd love to meet with you. I've been looking for someone like you to tell my story, somebody that understands both the supernatural uh, being a clergyman, but also being a doctor in behavioral science, you understand the psyche. So I had said, yeah, let's meet. We met early of 2022 and met for 100 hours, 34 sessions. Um, interestingly enough, I'm also a professor at two colleges. 
Uh, one is a secular school. The other one is a Christian school. I teach uh, abnormal psych, criminal psych, intro to psych, human growth and development. Um, so I met with David for 34 sessions at Shoregun Correctional Facility, uh, usually twice a month. Uh, usually each session covered about three, three and a half hours and uh, delved into a case study, the longest case study ever conducted on David Berkowitz. Uh, Dr. David Abrahamson was a criminologist back in the 80s, met with David about 50 hours. I doubled that time and did 100 hours. And uh, I took a perspective, I think that was a, a unique um, uh, perspective that was not your typical forensic evaluation of David in the book. I treated him more like a human, more like a man rather than a monster, and uh, dealt with some of the subjects that I found to be relevant and universal to anybody and everybody. Um, so, yeah, it began in 2021, and it went on for, I don't know, 16, 17 months. Um, and then we just released the book two weeks ago, uh, pardon me, three weeks ago. We ranked the number one uh, new release in serial killer books for the first three days in a row on Amazon and then stayed in the top five for the next two weeks. Right. So you've already had like great reviews and it is interesting. Like he's still a person, like they had this thing on Netflix, which was really big. It was sons of Sam. So people are still interested in Berkowitz. Is he aware of his interest, his ongoing interest by the public? Uh, yeah, he is, you know, he lives under that stigma of being the son of Sam, what he did, how he behaved, uh, as dastardly as it was, um, you know, he can't escape that stigma. I mean, it probably the real cell that he's in is not Shargun Correctional in Wallkill, New York. It's David's trapped inside of David. It's a cell of his own making. And uh, that stigma haunts him every day. I mean, he wakes up every morning. He said, Mike, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what I did and even sob in many cases over my victims. So he's aware he's got a TV in his cell. 16 inches, uh, 46 channels, and mostly he keeps on the animal channel. He watches a couple of other uh, programs, but, you know, he can't help but run into that 24-year-old smirking on that perp walk outside the Brooklyn precinct on August 10th, 1977, and he sees that 24-year-old man, and for him, it's it's haunting. Right, so he was, he was arrested at only 24. It's hard to believe. And that, that's like the most known picture, I guess, of him is him to perp walk where they got him into there. And at the time, and you show in the book, and I was interested to find this out, he was a practicing occultist Satanist, even up until his conversion in 88. So the crimes happened in 76, 77. But he said, according to you, he was still practicing rituals in, in jail for another 10 years. Is that right? His attraction for occultism began at probably about six or seven years old. Remember his vampire movies coming on the TV back in the early 50s or early 60s, rather. And uh, he was just drawn to the dark side from a young age. I mean, when he was eight years old, he would hide in dark closets under the bed three, four hours on a bright Saturday summer afternoon. Mom thinks he's outside in front of his apartment on Westchester Avenue in the South Bronx. Uh, neighborhood where my stepfather grew up David's supposed to be outside playing stickball with friends and he's hiding in a dark closet watching uh, horror movies at night just can't get enough of, of the dark side uh, became fascinated with Rosemary's Baby at a young age and then eventually The Exorcist um, so by the time he gets to his early 20s Yonkers was known to be a place of occult activity 
the rumors of Yonkers spread even to the Bronx. Uh, my stepfather told me growing up in the South Bronx, he remembers hearing about Yonkers. Oh, wow. So he moves to Yonkers because he wants to be close to the activity, the action, so to speak. Untermeyer Park was a popular place where they did, uh, you know, rituals, satanic um, devil worship. So he's definitely drawn into that. Uh, just kind of an existential guy, even to this day. He thinks in a very philosophical level. Um, was plagued by the question, who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? I mean, these questions weighed heavy on him at a young age, and it was really the dark side that lured him um, and certainly became a part of that cult and, uh, and onto Maya Park and, and got involved with those, like, those sorts of activities. Right, and he mentioned, so this is fairly recent, like within the last year or two, he's talking about the process, the children, magical child, like people in my research community are very aware of the magical child and i think the guy's name the owner was herman they're like that was a known occult hotspot in new york city but uh, so he gets drawn into this network and he he really it really kind of uh exacerbates kind of some of his already internal psychological shortcomings would you agree with that yeah, I mean, if you go, if you look at, uh, now, obviously, I'm coming from a background, not just in the supernatural, but psychology. If you study a guy by the name of Ron Fenbrenner, he speaks of the environment and its influence on the individual. And he breaks up the environment into a variety of systems. And the first system being your immediate family, but then the mesosystem, which is the community at large. And David's mesosystem, that uh, community in Yonkers, certainly played on his psyche. Uh, it emboldened him. It gave him a sense of empowerment, knowing he was with a pack. You know, if you look in the animal kingdom, wolves are always most ferocious when they're traveling uh, within a pack versus traveling solo. So David is, you know, in this pack, so to speak. And this pack gives him a sense of empowerment, a sense of anonymity. A term I use in the book, I teach it in my social psychology class called deindividuation. Deindividuation is when an individual's personality uh, is swallowed up by the ethos of a group. Uh, I mean, we see this every day. We see it in history. You know, the Germans during World War II, they were not a nation full of psychopaths. They were average people. Uh, but somehow, through certain social phenomena, one of them being de-individuation, de uh, the majority of Germans was in, were in support of Hitler on some level, at least sympathizing, and in some cases actively involved. Because we go along to get along. We conform. It's called the bandwagon effect. I mean, you can see it if you go to a rock concert and, you know, maybe you're a passive person, but now you're in the middle of that, uh, what do they call it, a mosh pit, I think. You're in the middle of that, you know, social energy and you get carried away and you're behaving far more aggressively than you would if you were alone and you were by yourself. So group influence is powerful. It's part of history and it's definitely part of David's story. And it definitely played a role in his uh, in his own psyche and his own development. Right. So this de-individuation process happened to him to so become part of a larger group of people. And he also kind of had this, like a, you use this term I'd never heard before, daimonion, which is kind of like this. You, like you go into kind of a spiritual uh, de definition of these guys kind of being affected by uh, things outside of our realm is one way to put it. Would you? Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I, I it sounds horse and buggy in the United States of America to talk about demons because we're so rational. I mean, we are so left-brained that I think our bodies tilt when we walk down the street to the left. I mean, we're just very rational people. 
uh, two thirds of the world still believe in demonic possession. I mean, if you go to Africa, um, there are exorcisms all the time. In fact, there's far less human trafficking, far less uh, mass shootings, far less mental health issues in some of these countries that believe in the demonic than there are in America. So we can snub our nose at the Africans and those parts of the world that do believe in demonian, which is a Greek word for demons. But the reality is we're leading the way in criminal atrocities. Um, so who really is horse and buggy? I argue in the book that there is a supernatural realm. I'm not saying that's at the expense of psychology. Not at all. It plays on our psychology. Um, the best illustration I can think of is, look, there are times when you get so angry, you know, you, maybe you get worked up, maybe a road rage incident, and you do something you wouldn't ordinarily do in your character, and then you apologize afterwards. Listen to the language that comes out of your mouth when you apologize. You say, I don't know what possessed me. I don't know what got into me. I'm sorry, I got carried away. This vernacular insinuates some paranormal energy, something outside of us that whips up our irritation into rage. Now, look, if you look at the interviews with a lot of these killers, from David Berkowitz to Ted Bundy to the BTK, um, you'll, you'll see them talk about, and I'm not saying that they necessarily agree with the supernatural, but they certainly insinuate, take Ted Bundy, 150 hours, two FBI agents interview him, and he calls this energy that came over him when he did the killings an entity, something foreign, something outside his body. Um, Chris Watts, who murdered his wife and two babies four or five years ago, Chris said when it was happening, it was as if, it was as if I was outside myself in the corner of the room watching myself do what I did. Uh, BTK, I know, is referred to it as the X factor. Now, in his mind, it may not be the devil per se, but my point is there's some energy, something behind uh, maniacal behavior that you can say, look, it's probably somewhere in their psyche. It's what came out of them, but maybe it's also what got into them. Is there a, perhaps a supernatural reality that interacts with natural phenomenon? And this book sort of shed, sheds light on the synergy or the interplay between the supernatural and the psychological. Me being a clergyman, as well as a behavioral scientist, I've sort of married the two together in the book. Yeah, it's really interesting. And that I actually screenshotted that one section of your book where you went through how many serial killers there were who had supernatural events. I remember one guy in um, Florida... He had some kind of entity he called like, oh, he was he was the Florida State serial killer. But yeah, so a lot of these guys have supernatural things going on. Occult, that's kind of like the big secret. Like people don't ever want to really talk about it, occult influences. But I'm glad you addressed that in this book. And you talk, it was interesting too, because Exorcist was a movie, but that was based on a true story called Possession. It was mm. actually a book called Possession that uh, they built that whole you know, incredible film that was super influential and influential on um, Berkowitz as well, on a true story. But anger, you also talk about the theme of anger. Berkowitz was ang kind of an angry guy until his conversion, right? Can you talk about that? You know, it's interesting because I got a chance to see David Berkowitz angered. Um, you know, it's one thing to hear about his anger 46 years ago. It's another thing to see it in real time. I describe in session uh, seven, I think it is, out of the 34, 
it's in chapter three of the book, or chapter two, rather, in chapter two of the book, I talk about David being angry. Now, does that mean he's not a reformed man? No, we all get angry. It's human to get angry. It's how you manage the anger. The problem isn't the emotion. The problem is the emotions. How do you handle or manage the anger? And David, from a young age, his anger was, uh, you didn't want to get him started because he didn't know how to stop. Just the kind of guy he was, uh, very vindictive. Uh, he said it started as a kid. He would weaponize silence against his parents. He had two adopted parents that wanted his love so badly. I mean, they went to great extremes. They spared no time, money, and energy to try to bond with their adopted son. And he punishes them by stonewalling them, uh, you know, just being silent for years towards them. And uh, he's angry. And then he goes, lights, lights fires. And he lit. By the time he was arrested, 1,400 fires through the Bronx. Uh, in fact, there was a serial arsonist um, throughout the 1970s. The South Bronx was on fire. And the newspapers had the headlines, The Phantom of the Bronx. And The Phantom of the Bronx, when he would light something on fire, he would call the police and he would rat on himself and say, I just lit this particular location on fire. Well, it turns out, the son of Sam was the Phantom of the Bronx, and that was David uh, expressing his rage through um, through pyromania. Now uh, we know with FBI interviews that pyromania is typically motivated by one one of two things. Usually, either it's um, a sexual motivation, and you know someone is actually getting off; they're getting their rocks off on lighting fires. Um, but then, and other people, it's not so much lust; it's that they're livid, that they're angry. In David's case, it was an expression of his rage. Um, so anger was a theme throughout his story. But I got a chance to see this man at 70 years old. I walk into a session. He has a verbal altercation. It was really more one way. An inmate that said something to him very derogatory. And I watched for three and a half hours. David Berkowitz managed that anger as good as it anybody could manage anger. Um, so to me, I, I'm a believer in his transformation. Doesn't mean I want to see him out. Not that I think he would harm again, but my sense of justice might get in the way of me saying release him. Um, being that there are families that can't see their loved ones anymore. Uh, but I do believe in his reformation because I've seen the man, not just his actions. I've seen his reactions. And actions, people think are a good test of character. They're not. People can put on, put on a great act. Shakespeare said, the world is a stage. All of the players are the world. So putting on an act is easy. But reactions, how does a man act when he's under pressure? How does he act when he's taken off guard? Reactions can tell you a lot about a person's character. I had 100 hours to see reactions, and it made a believer out of me. Right, and he's kind of like helpful in jail. He's kind of an optimal jail, uh, you know, prison member. And he, I mean, he's, he carries a Bible around and, and kind of is in, he's actually talks to people a lot in a Christian sense, right? He's, he's involved in uh, sending letters and things like that. Isn't that correct? Yes. I, I've been dealing with inmates now for 20 some odd years. And I know that there are many jailhouse conversions. Um, I've dealt with jailhouse conversions. I've uh, dealt with two other serial killers prior to David Berkowitz. The relationships came to an impasse because there were too many psychopathic games and these men were touting religion for the wrong reasons. Uh, but you can't fake a religion for 35 years. You just can't do it. The mask falls off at some point. 
David Berkowitz has been practicing his faith for 35 years. He mentors yeah. 15 to 17 guys in the prison. They call him Pastor Dave. He blushes when they say Pastor. He's really uncomfortable with the title, but that's how they look to him. Letters from people around the world, hundreds of letters, asking his counsel. People turn to him because they don't expect judgment. They think he's a safe place to go. He's going to be the last person to throw a stone. Even the serial killer on campus, uh, the Idaho campus killer, or is it Utah, a year ago, killed four people on a college campus, wrote David a letter. So David gets letters from people around the world, and he consistently you know, shares his faith. He talks suicidal teenagers off the ledge. I mean, the guy is the real deal. Um, does he deserve to be behind bars? That's a whole other subject. And I, I would agree. He probably should stay right where he is. But where he is, he's living a very productive life, and he is a practicing Christian. And he's it's 10th parole hearing or something like that. So he's been through opportunities to get out, right? I think you said his, t- his 10th parole hearing was fairly recently, right? Yeah, the next one is in June. It's every two years in June. And uh, he, he blew off the first four or five. But then he was told that it's perceived as arrogance by the parole board. Um, so he said, you know what, let me go out of respect. It'll also be a chance to let the parole board see the transformations do happen. But I go with no expectations. And he does. He goes with no expectations. He's not looking to get out. In fact, he knows it's probably very unsafe to be out in the general public. Um, but, yeah, he does go to those parole meetings with very low expectation of being released. It's more to, more to show the parole committee that, that change can happen. And he, he was one of those uh, kids who found out he was adopted, and that had a, a serious effect upon his personality. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, you know, this goes deep, this adoption issue. I'm a little reluctant to speak on this because, you know, I, uh, I believe in adoption. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I'm so grateful for the people that do adopt. But here's the reality. When a child is separated, when a baby is separated from a mother, and they bond with that mother for nine months, you think learning begins in the classroom. It doesn't. Learning begins in the womb. A baby develops a bond with that mom. I mean, the data will back me up on this. There have been plenty of studies to show that when a baby is born, it can discriminate the body odor of its mother in a room full of strangers. It knows the sound of its mother's voice amidst a group of strangers. So there's a bond that develops for nine months. To take that bond that's been developed for nine months and to sever it, what we call bond disruption, affects the central nervous system in ways that science is just catching up with. Um, prenatal development is uh, a new science, probably about 30 years old, but we're learning things. For instance, uh, infants that were, or fetuses rather, that were in their mother's womb during 9-11, if those moms lived in the lower Manhattan, New York City area amidst all the stress of 9-11, 21 years later, 22 years later, those group of, of, of fe- fe- uh, fetuses that are now adults have a higher likelihood of PTSD than the wow. average person because the central nervous system is being developed. It's not the mind. We're talking central nervous system. We're talking deep, instinctual, visceral responses to life that go deeper than the thoughts. Cognition doesn't come into later. So instincts are shaped in the womb. And that bond disruption, listen, here's the facts. Serial killers and mass shooters 
are 16 times more likely to be adopted than the general population. Wow. Yeah, Am I amazing. saying that adoption's wrong? No, but it has to be recognized as a trauma. Am I saying that all adoptees are going to become serial killers and mass shooters? Absolutely not. But in some cases, it's one ingredient when you mix it with a few others. In the case of David Berkowitz, and I talk about those nine ingredients in the book, it becomes a perfect storm. Um, so David's adoption did affect him on a very visceral level. His adopted parents would say they spent his, their entire, his entire childhood trying to bond with him. And he couldn't understand it, but he would push them away. He did not want to bond with his adopted parents. Um, and then, of course, you know, you're told your real parents gave you up for adoption. That word real played on his psyche. What do you mean real? My real right. parents. Are you not real? Um, so, you know, it sort of illegitimized his adopted parents in his young mind, really played on his psyche. And he actually internalized the thought that he killed his adopt his uh, biological mother because he was told that his biological mother died during the pregnancy, which ended up being a lie. He found out later on. But he believed at a young age that he killed his biological mother. Now, that might sound fairy tale, but if you understand psychology and Piaget's cognitive development theory, you know that a kid at five years old is egocentric. They perceive everything that happens in the world as their fault. So that's just the, the way a five-year-old thinks. Um, so he internalized this idea at five that he was a killer of his own mother. And as you know, Rene Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, that thought, along with a bond disruption at birth, along with some shaming that happened and a lot of other factors, uh, played, into, played into the making of the son of Sam. Yeah, no, it's incredible. His adoptive parents seemed like they did everything they could to just try to be the best of all things, and, and his dad was working hard and didn't seem to actually reject him even after he committed the crime. It seemed like they were still had some relationships, so to to the father's credit. Let me um, tell you, if there, was a, if there was a book I could write as a follow-up to this book, it would be the story between Nat Berkowitz, David's adoptive father, and David. Nat visited David for many years until he got sick. He died at 102 years old in 2012. And the relationship between these two is inspiring. I mean, it's the stuff of great movies. Um, that father stood by his son when the entire world, I mean, in 1977, David was the most hated man in America. And Nat right. stood by his side. When the world walked out, uh, Nat walked in and stood by his son's side to the very end. And he, you know, the the crimes were really horrific, but the psychological effects, like they put, he put the whole city on, like you know, in some kind of like terrorist PTSD state, right? Everybody's, and it's kind of strange too because I talked to another guest. New York is super violent at that time, but even that, even that violence was overshadowed by these e random events. Like that's what captured everybody's imagination in '76 and '77. Yeah, I mean, the only the only comparison would be uh, post. 9-11, the hysteria in New York City. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Providence, Rhode Island boy. I grew up two and a half hours from New York City, but family started in lower Manhattan, migrated to, uh, to Rhode Island, and New York was always a home away from home. And I know how tough New Yorkers can be, but I remember seeing 9-11 and seeing the hysteria. That, that would be the only fair comparison. It was a cumulative nervous breakdown. I mean, New Yorkers were falling over themselves in the 70s, afraid of being shot by the son of Sam. Discos were closing early. 
uh, women were changing the color of their hair. It was believed that he was only targeting brunettes. I mean, the, he was obviously corresponding back and forth with the media, writing letters to the police, leaving letters on top of corpses. I mean, it was just uh, the city was in a, a state of hysteria. Fear in general, and I discuss it in the book, is a contagion. You know, when you're with people and they're hysterical, it, it rubs off on you. I mean, there have been, been studies done on haunted houses. If you walk through a haunted house alone, uh, your fear might reach a, a seven on a scale one to 10. But if you walk through a, a haunted house with 10 other people and they're hysterical, that same haunted house, the same stimuli, your fear now goes from a seven to a 10 because if fear, it spreads as it, as it spikes. I mean, it, it's catchy. It's a contagion. So New York City, people were falling all over themselves trying to escape the son of Sam. And he definitely played on that. Um, it definitely fueled the crimes. Um, it was also part of the ethos of the cult to raise anarchy. So he was, you know, sort of acting out of his own psychology, but also acting out of the ethos of the group. All right. And one of the interesting things I saw in your book, which I didn't know about him, is that you go into a section about cognitive distortions. So... Berkowitz himself, his psychology, his hearing, and the way he perceived things, it wasn't like a, a way off, like psychotic, but he still had little things about his elements, his hearing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that's been the big question for years about David Berkowitz. Was he psychopathic or was he psychotic? Um, psychopathic would mean he was bad. Psychotic would mean he was mad. Uh, mad meaning deranged. And... Uh, you know, if, if from a forensic perspective, um, I, I would say as a forensic evaluator, uh, and this is not really a forensic evaluation, this is more an evaluation of the soul, uh, the soul being something that's universal and human to all of us. And I kind of bracketed a lot of the clinical language so that you could relate to David Berkowitz and you could relate to the man rather than the monster. But if I were to take that monster perspective, the forensic evaluation, I would say he was psychopathic with psychotic tendencies. Um, psychopathic because there were calculating maneuvers on his part. He knew what he was doing. You know, a lot of uh, strategic thinking involved, a lot of catch me if you can, you know, cover up, which is all indicative of the psychopath, but definitely psychotic tendencies in the sense of these hearing voices, um, some delusions and hallucinations. Um, but those distortions, or should I say delusions, they really began with distortions at a young age. And I talk about those distortions in a way that you as a reader can relate, because let's face it, if you look at the list of cognitive distortions in your average psychology textbook, you will see that you too get it twisted often. I mean, our perspective can get so twisted on how we see people, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. Um, so David getting it twisted in his head you know, it, he might seem like a, a creature from the abyss, but I think when you read the book, you're going to see more of a mirror than a monster and, and realize that, wow, I get it twisted like that, too. And uh, certainly David Berkowitz went a lot further than you and I would ever go. Um, but at its fundamental level, cognitive distortions are jaded ways of seeing the world. I detail about four or five of them in, in the book. And uh they can really befall anybody. Right. And you talk about the just world fallacy, cruel God fallacy. So he had, yeah, he was, 
you know, he had a, a host of things going on that would lead him to those acts. There's no question about it. Um, do you have time for a few questions? Yeah, of um, course, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, big, uh, big ass. Does he have any info on the child trafficking Berkowitz talked about after being caught? Do you have any info on that? Uh, no, David didn't go into depth on the activities of the cult. Um, from what David tells me, he was more on the fringes than he was in the inner, the inner courts of what was going on in that cult. In fact, as much as I detail his involvement with the cult and how the cult influenced his thinking, uh, there's an in entirely separate chapter. With, and I'm going to save this for the reader, where, the, where David makes some pretty shocking confessions about how exactly involved that cult was um, in the crimes. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't want to really, spoiler alert, I don't really want to give that up. You can, you can read that yourself. Uh, but no, he didn't, he didn't get into the nitty gritty. And part of the reason why he didn't get into the nitty gritty is because he was more... Now understand this about David Berkowitz. This has been a, a theme throughout his entire life from the time he was a kid. He always belonged to a group, played on the baseball team. He was part of the Appalachian Mountain Club. They used to climb the Appalachian Mountains, actually climb the Gunks, which is mountains right behind the prison that he's in right now. He can see through one of the windows in the prison a spot in the mountains he used to climb as a teenager. Pretty It's like an hour north of NYC, is that right? Yeah, Wall Kill is about an hour, about an hour north from uh, Westchester County. But uh, David Berkowitz was always part of a group, but he was always sort of on the fringes of the group. He always maintained this maverick status. Um, he was always a part of it, but not too deeply into it. I mean, when he was a kid, you know, he'd go bike riding with his friends, but then at some point, all his friends go home, and he goes bike riding for hours, far further and longer than that the group is willing to go. So that's kind of the personality of David Berkowitz. Is, is he a, a group person? Is he extrovert? Is he introvert? I'd say he's more ambivert. He's part of the group, but he, he maintains this maverick status. It begins in childhood, and it really even followed him all the way through adulthood. And I'd say his status in the cult was not as deeply entrenched as some would like to believe. Um, he still maintained this maverick status. Right, and he had those two car brothers. I think you mentioned a little bit about them in the book, and what happened. I mean, a lot of, a lot of weird things happened after his arrest. There was a lot of strange stuff, but he, I mean, his writing was really something else. Like the writing that he put out in addition to the crimes, just to kind of the, the whole stuff, the writing literary skills that he had. He's obviously an intelligent guy, which is interesting. I think, do you find that he's more intelligent than the average bear? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say his IQ is somewhere around 120. Uh, he's a, he's a deep thinker thinks upon things very philosophically um you know he extrapolates meaning from concrete data pretty easily um and at the same time he's very concrete in his thinking he can remember facts and details pretty well um so yeah i'd say he's a he, he's a very intelligent man um and that and and also that's also a curse fan his deep thinking can sometimes take him to places where it's a real battle in his head but he's very transparent about that. Him and I, him and I have had some real heart-to-heart -heart discussions when he's got lost in his head. Um, I mean, we all get lost in our head at some point. But it, usually that's the curse of those who, who think too much. Uh, he's an overthinker.
Um, very analytical guy for sure. He had human qualities. Like he missed out on family. He said he didn't get to spend time with his nieces and his half sister. So like, those are things that always bother him too. Not, not just the crimes. I mean, it seemed like he was self-aware that he didn't want to talk about the crimes as much to you. It seemed like that. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, at, at first when I met with him in the beginning for a while, I didn't think I'd, he'd talk at all about the crimes and then empathy developed trust rapport. And then all of a sudden you'll see at the end of the book, the last few chapters, he gets a lot more transparent about what happened. Um, it's a subject that is a trauma, not just for countless people. And he knows it's first and foremost about the victims, but it's also a trauma that he inflicted upon himself. So discussing these subjects, it can, I mean, I have seen this man, I don't mean cry. I've seen him sob um, quite a few times. And I, I know that's deserved. I'm not here to say it's, he's this angel. I'm just here to say that he feels things you know we, we got this idea of a psychopath we love it's more pop psychology and more yeah. movies and criminal mind tv shows than it is the actual psychology right, i mean we got more experts on criminal psychology today because of criminal minds That's and because true. of all these youtube videos but you know when you when you actually get to know people like this and you have higher education in this area you realize there's a vast difference between uh, pop psychology's depiction of the psychopath and what what is actual, and I can tell you the guy does empathize, he does sob, um, he does um, regulate impulses. I mean, he does a lot of the things that don't fit that psychopath criteria. And he even reached out to I think the Moth School's mother. I found that an interesting uh, fact in your book. Like that is not somebody who doesn't care. That's somebody who's trying to like make amends or at least. Say something. So that to me also affirms this kind of different evolved psychology of somebody too. And you you are adamant his conversion is 100% authentic, right? Most definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, look, does that mean he doesn't, as a Christian for the last 35 years, still struggle with character defects? I mean, come on. I, I'm, yeah, I've been a Christian for 28 years and I still, I still have some character defects, some hangups. Who doesn't? Problem with Nobody. him is he's on full Nobody. display. He's, you know, his, his life is whatever he does or has done is like a, a fish in a bowl. All eyes are on him. He doesn't have the luxury like you and I of being invisible. Okay. Um, you know, if your top secret classified information was put up on a movie screen in the church on a Sunday morning, how would you feel? Facts are we have a certain level of anonymity that he doesn't have. He's had to wrestle with some character defects. In fact, seeing those flaws, being able to see his transparency about those flaws, made more of a believer out of me in his conversion than seeing his flares, his strengths. A gemologist, when it determines whether a diamond is real, it's not looking for a perfect diamond. If a diamond is perfect, it's a cubic zirconium. It's looking for cracks. The cracks tell you it's a real diamond. I've seen the cracks in David Berkowitz. I've seen him talk about those cracks. I've seen him talk about his problem with deception, with lying, with a lot of things, and talk about it very candidly. That made a believer out of me, more than seeing a perfect man. I don't trust perfect people. I, when I see someone that's perfect, I'm thinking in my mind, what are you hiding? Um, I, I, I see that as Cuba Siconium. I don't see that as a diamond. I think of the home shopping network versus the real diamond you could buy at a diamond shop. So David Berkowitz is the real deal in my mind because I've seen the flaws and I've seen him talk about those flaws and work through them. 
Mike, a great talk, great book. I mean, congrats on the book. It's an excellent book. All the five-star reviews are deserved. Where's the best place for people to get Monster Mirror? Amazon, no doubt. Amen. Go to Amazon. In fact, they're discounting it right now. You know, they do this thing where they every now and then they, they discount it a little bit and then they put it back to retail price. Usually lasts a couple of days. You go on now, you're going to save yourself a couple of dollars. Order it on Amazon. You get it in your house if you got Prime in a day or so. And you, there's a paperback and Kindle, correct? You can get Spanish version, English version, That's paperback nice. and Kindle. Yeah, and it's doing really well, just like you said. And if people want to reach out to you or follow up or maybe send you an email, is there an optimal place they can do that? Sure. You can uh, reach out to me on doctor.caparelli at gmail.com. Um, I'm not uh, offering counseling. I'm sorry. I just, uh, after two heart attacks, I've got to stay in my lane. I teach uh, college classes at two schools, and I travel the nation. Um, every week, I'm in a different state talking on mental health. So counseling for me is just too much. But if you have a question and you want me to maybe bring some light to it, I'd be happy to do that. Um, Dr.Caparelli at gmail.com, or you can order the book on Amazon. Right. So it's D-R-C-A-P-A-R-R-E-L-L-I at gmail.com for the audience. dot. Yep. C-A-P. Yep. All right. Gotcha. And uh, again, the title of the book is Monster Mirror, 100 Hours with David Berkowitz, once known as Son of Sam, and the author is Michael A. Caparelli, PhD. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, William. Right. God bless you, brother. God bless you. God bless you. Stay there. Stay there.